1: Hello, everybody. Welcome to the New Books in Catholic Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. This channel and episode were created in collaboration with the American Catholic Historical Association, which is a community of scholars, archivists, and teachers of Catholic studies. My name is Brenna Moore. I'm a professor of theology at Fordham University. Today, we'll be talking to Dr. Mary Dunn, an associate professor of theological studies at St. Louis University. Uh, Mary is the author and editor of many notable publications and currently serves as as the director of SLU's new Center for Research on Global Catholicism. And today, we'll be talking with Mary about her recent new fabulous book called Where the Paralytics Walk and the Blind See. Stories of Sickness and Disability at the Juncture of Worlds, published just this year in 2022 by Princeton University Press. Mary, uh, welcome to the show. Thank you, Dr. Moore. Yes, it's so nice to be in conversation with a fellow scholar of Catholicism and in all, to be honest, my very dear friend, Mary. Um, and it's really an honor to be in conversation with you about your fabulous new book. Um, the book um, is really such a remarkable and a really beautiful account of, on the one hand, early modern narratives of sickness and disability. It's really, the book is anchored in a set of historical case studies about the meanings made about sickness and healing from the early modern Catholic world. Um, but more than that, and Mary, this is always what I have admired so much about your work, It's and it's exhibited so strongly in this book, is your constant willingness to pull back from your sources and reflect with your readers about broader meanings of these case studies. And here in this book, you explore how these narratives of of imagining sickness, healing disability in early modern Catholic Canada in particular, how they kind of grind against modern medical approaches to sickness and and disability. So there's so many exciting things I can't wait to talk to you about, to ask you. Um, So let's begin, shall we? Sounds great. Yes, thank you. Okay, um, so I'd say before we dive into a discussion of the details of your book, where paralytics walk and the and the blind see, if you can just tell your readers or tell our listeners a bit about how you first came into this particular project. I mean, the the this you have a beautiful introduction about um, you know some of your that you're very much your kind of personal investment in this in this scholarly project. But for those listening and who are encountering the book for the very first time on this podcast, if you might give our listeners just a glimpse of some of what you share in this book, how you came to this project as a mother of a child who has neurological differences and your own experience with a serious sickness just a couple of years ago. So tell us a bit about how these experiences set this project in motion.
0: Sure. Yeah, that's an excellent question. I began this book, um, really wanting to reflect on disability in particular. Um, my daughter, as you just mentioned, Brenna, is a wonderful, bright, energetic, very humorous spark um, in our lives. And she has a, at the same time, she has a what's known as a chromosomal uh, microdeletion. Um, So as you describe it, it's a neurological disability or a neurological difference. And as my experience as a mother has been one of kind of constantly being confronted with interpretations of this difference or this disability as a disability, that there's something missing, there's something lacking. Let's try to do these therapies, let's try to do these interventions, let's try to make these accommodations that get this child as close to normal quote unquote as possible and this has always um kind of struck me as such a myopic way to perceive her experience her life and my experience and my family's experience um with her um and so I just started thinking, you know, this is really this is really a series of the way I came to this book was just kind of through a series of, um, I don't know, intellectual acrobatics or intellectual just questions of curiosity. I mean, what are other ways, I began to wonder, what are other ways of making sense of this particular neurological difference or what in our culture we classify as disabilities. And it struck me that so many of the ways um, people were making sense of my daughter were just premised on this idea that this is a problem and we need to fix it. And of course, it's not a problem. It's a way of being in the world. And I started to wonder in connection with my own um, location as a historian of early modern Catholicism, well, what were some other ways in the early modern Catholic past that people thought about disability, that people thought about embodied differences, I came to call it in the book. So that was where the book began. Um, The way that, as you know, you know, the way the book opens is with um, my experience in Berlin back in 2019. uh, No, not 2019, back in 2014 and kind of coming upon a memorial to the victims of um, the Aktion T4 program, which was kind of the initiating experiment, if you will, for the Holocaust in which, you know, some 250 or 300,000 disabled people um, were euthanized. And it was a modest structure, a kind of modest memorial. And I was just sort of totally stopped in my tracks when I came upon this memorial. And at the same time, you know, I opened the book with this reflection know, i I'd, I'd gone on a morning run with my husband and my daughter was in the hotel room sleeping with um her grandmother and her brothers and just this glaring contrast between how much she was loved and how well she was integrated into our family and then this memorial to a project of annihilation of disabled people um really was you know i think that encapsulates in many ways what brought me to this subject to begin with but then in the midst of writing this book um Unfortunately, I received my own diagnosis um, of, as you mentioned, of a serious disease. And so the book became one about not just disability, but one about sickness too, because all of these questions I had about disability and the ways of making sense of disability started to butt into my own experience in the modern medical um, system. And once again, I was confronted with these narratives of you know, this is a problem and we have to fix it. And yes, of course, in many ways, this sickness and this diagnosis were was, was a big problem and didn't really need to be fixed. And I'm very grateful that it has been fixed. And I'm very grateful for the um, kind of technical technical expertise of my medical team. But it just felt my experience over those years, which I bring to bear in the book, was one where my whole life experience once I walked through those hospital doors, was just collapsed into this small, narrow narrative window of this is a problem and this needs to be fixed. Whereas my experience with it was so much more and, you know, dare I say, so much richer than that. Um, So these are the experiences that really kind of animate the book and that I like to think of. um, I like to think of this book in some ways as a triptych It's sort of a three-panel book, the introduction and the conclusion return to these presentist, more personal questions that are just kind of humming along as a sort of baseline in the book. And then the centerpiece of the book with the four chapters are these case studies um, of early modern ways of narrating sickness and disability.
1: Wow. Thank you so much, Mary. That's really a beautiful reflection as we get started. And, you know, before we dig into, I have some questions about some of these case studies, but just to follow up a little bit on um, on your, your framing and the kind of so what of the book, both your personal starting point, but also, you know, the larger reflections that you make um, at the beginning and the end of the book about, just to borrow from your language, the real, the comparatively very, very narrow way, the narrow kind of narrative we have in modernity for dealing with sickness, um, neural or sickness and bodily difference, as you call it, um, and you talk a lot about. Modern ways of seeing disability as a problem to be fixed—that you're, you know, that you're constantly trying to kind of erase it and shuttle it towards the quote-unquote normal—and um, I just wonder, you know, you don't get into this this that much, but it was it was so striking. Like I hadn't really thought about that as as much um, until reading this book, and especially reading your narratives of how differently disability and sickness was was imagined. And I think you do a great job. It's not like it was necessarily—you're not. Romanticizing it or we should go back and imagine it that way. I think you're very clear on that. But there was just a wider range of possibilities. But in modernity, do you think it's the rise of modern medicine or the pharmaceutical industry? Or what how do you account for, you know, as a scholar of, of Catholicism, but also as a scholar? Of kind of the history ideas, a scholar of culture, what accounts for this, this narrowing, you know, this relative narrowing ways and the, the kind of paucity of our meaning making equipment to deal with disability and sickness. Why did, why did that happen? What do you think? It's such a great question
0: from a scholarly point of view, I think as uh, what disability studies scholars have argued is that the, the rise of the quote unquote normal really begins with 19th century industrialization and the rise of the factories and this you know, it's kind of hyper-capitalistic need to produce. Um, everybody must be generative. Everybody must be productive. Um, there are factory jobs to be had. And if your body doesn't conform to the mandate of the factory setting, then you can't be as productive as you might be. So there's a way in which physical disabilities and the need to kind of normalize the abnormal disabled body becomes a problem, particularly with the rise of 19th century industrial capitalism. But on the other hand, I mean, I think maybe this isn't as scholarly um, as it is just Kind of cultural reflection and personal reflection. But I do think that as, you know, I like the way you put it, like the paucity of the range of meanings that we could give to sickness, that we could give to disability. I think that stands in contrast to the, the blooming and like the blossoming of the possibilities of medical science. I mean, in a way I think there are two things that we could say, I mean, perhaps in a way that th- this is um sort of a um, development of enlightenment optimism about human beings' capacities to shape their own worlds and to solve the problems in the given world. Um, it also, I think, has to do with just the success of technology and the success of medical interventions in fixing a lot of our bodily problems, you know, for better or worse. And of course, you know, I what just want to emphasize here that I, this book is really about the both. And I mean, I am incredibly grateful for the medical technologies and for the way that the medical, um, kind of the medical machinery solved my problem and has really made life for my daughter much easier. And, um, Yeah, just simply much easier. And at the same time, there is this wide swath of experiencing, whether sickness or disability or any kind of embodied difference that isn't captured by those narrow narratives. But I think just, you know, in response to your question, it's almost because we can solve so many more problems than were possible to be solved, you know, 400 years ago, um, you know, in the time period in which I focus on in this book, that we tend to think about sickness and disability and other forms of bodily difference as problems to be solved, because so, so often they can be solved. But I think one of the big points in this book that I wanted to drive home, which I think on a personal level was really driven home for me upon my diagnosis in 2017, was that at the end of the day, there are going to be physical problems that none of us can solve. I mean, we will all, in, in disability studies, one of the terms is TABS. Um, there aren't disabled people and able-bodied people. There are people with disabilities and temporarily able-bodied people, the TABS, which is to say that at a certain point, all of us will become people with disabilities um, in a way aging itself is a process of um. Kind of acquiring physical disabilities, perhaps cognitive disabilities, at a certain point. And so the question becomes: I think for me, it's a it's an urgent question. It's not a what the question of making meaning of sickness and disability as other than a problem simply to be solved is an urgent task for all of us. And so my intervention in this book is just kind of to help. How can we start thinking about the inevitable process of bodily? difference that all of us will experience as something that we can thrive with and not have to fight against
1: yeah that's that's really well put and I do think that um, that you do a good job in the book saying helping readers see that this is a both and that you know you could imagine you know people who are critical of kind of the narrowness of science could give rise to a kind of Anti-modern way of thinking about, you know, medicine or something, and it's not at all what you're talking about. Um, You're just trying to kind of open up a wider range of possibilities, and I think that, um, you know, on the one hand, what you're saying is. That's, I love that notion that the, the tabs that we're temporarily able able bodied. And so we all, all of us need at some point, whether for ourselves, our family members, to be able to have on hand richer narratives to make sense of the things that we can't change. Right. But then also, I would say, even a more kind of I mean in addition I guess an a, a moral imperative of this work is like I returned to the haunting image at the beginning of your book about the annihilation of those hundreds of thousands of dis, you know of disabled people during World War II in Germany that you know of that's an extreme example but we do still see like you know in New York City the public schools that uh, you know just Seem to kind of throw away, in a sense, the the needs of children with um, who have you know learning learning differences and so forth. So there is a sense of like it's a problem, and almost it's easier like get it out, get that out of our school. Um, it's not our problem. That that I think, you know, thinking of tools, imaginative tools we might all have to see all of us in our midst um, as other than problems to be solved. I think um, because when you can't solve them, there is almost this, like sometimes the moral next step might be in people's imagination to like throw it away or, you know, get it out of here. Like it excised from the community in some, in some way. So there's such a moral urgency, I think, to the work of the book that I really admire.
0: I think that's exactly right, the moral urgency point. Uh, one of the points, I, I want to make two points here. Um, one of the objectives of the book was to kind of frame this narrative, kind of narrow narrative we have about sickness and disability as problems to be solved as dangerous narratives in a sense, because as you say, you know, there are some, when we, when we define things as problems, there are sickness and disability, there are some that cannot be solved. What we categorize as disability will not simply disappear with years of therapy. Um, sometimes diseases are chronic, or they might be terminal, and so in those cases, the only way to make sense of those phenomena in the narrow narrative framework of problems to be solved is as failures. And so, which is, I think, what you're saying, like in the school system, when we can't, when we can't teach these kids in the kind of the framework of the quote-unquote normal. Well, let's just, you know, put them in the basement and ignore them until their parents come and get them at the end of the day. And right. And um yeah. And I just think uh, I, th- I think there's so much more. Um, there, there's, you know, there's such beauty in um, I mean, there can be such beauty in both the experience of disability and sickness. And I only say this. Um, I know there can be a lot of agony, too, and a lot of grief, but uh, but I cannot help but think that our, um, the fact that we're so captured and maybe imprisoned by this narrow narrative of these are problems to be solved only exacerbates the grief and the agony of the experience of disability and sickness. Um, the other thing I wanted to say was in terms of the both and one of the things I really wanted to do in this book, and I say it in the introduction, but I think it it. I worry that maybe it's a bit of a subtle point, but in bringing these two kinds of narratives, the problem to be solved, modern medical narrative, and these, um, and these early modern narratives that have a richer range of meanings ascribed to sickness and disability, in bringing these two into encounter, what I wanted, what I really wanted to drive home was this idea that the possibilities, I think of it as two things colliding and then making space for more. Like the possibilities of the imagination for thinking about and making meaning of experiences of embodied difference are actually infinite. And there's such freedom in that. Um, uh, So that's, yeah, I think that that's something that I think is maybe perhaps was made a point that was made a bit too subtly in the book, but something I really want to emphasize. It's neither the early modern narratives that I think are great, nor the modern one that I think is great. It's the fact that really um, what
1: the possibilities for making meaning of these experiences is are infinite. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I, and I think that you do make that point very well. And that's a nice transition um, to my next question. So, you know as we you know for for those listening you know mary's book in the beginning and the end really talk about these these larger these larger questions of meaning making but the heart of the book are a range of these historical sources anchored in French-speaking Canada, early modern Catholic world. There is a chapter on the Jesuit stories of illness in New France. Um, there's a hagiography. There's a, uh, an extraordinary tale of miraculous healings wrought by a dead Franciscan. There's a story of kind of the founding of one of the first hospitals by a religious community. And they're all so richly detailed. And to use your words, too, I mean, they are so imaginative. It is so, so different. you know. And some of it, it is like you talk about kind of there's this yeah. <laughs> Baroque Catholic sort of excessive exaggeration of you know the sickness, the close to death, the pus, the sweat, the fever, the delirium. I mean, it was it was all of that. Is so it was so much sort of relishing in these different range of embodied experiences. Um, and so just to like dig dig into dig into maybe one of the case studies, the one. I mean, I really love them all, um, but I thought I might see if you could dig in with us a little bit about the first chapter where you talk about the Jesuit relations, the Jesuit um missionaries to New France. And it's a historical narrative, but really what you do, which was which was really striking and unusual for a really kind of deeply, deeply historical chapter, I'd say unusual, but beautiful, is that you weave in this kind of gripping narrative of an indigenous convert named Emery, who is in the grip of a kind of fever dream sickness. He's on his deathbed in a log, a log cabin near the St. Lawrence River. And, and what um, Mary does in the book, what you do do is you kind of take on his voice and an imagined eye, so it's written in kind of italics font that you kind of take on based on you know your research into his world, what he might have been experiencing and thinking, and as he sort of ruminating on his illness. And, um, and part of the book is, is, is him kind of grappling in his inner life about, on the one hand, the native indigenous healing practices that he somewhat, you know, kind of rejected, maybe with some reluctance as he converted to Catholicism. Um, And then also him kind of praying to the Christian God for healing. Um, And you close this, you close this chapter of kind of wondering about maybe multiple possibilities of meanings of, of what he, he made of his own life. And I wondered if you might read for us, um, your closing kind of imagined paragraph as you're taking on his experience, um, on page 59 of the book, if you might read a paragraph, read, read that, um, the closing of that chapter and tell us a little bit about what you, what this means, what Emery meant to you. Yeah. Thank
0: you, Brenna. Okay. So this is the end of chapter 1. Emory opened his eyes. Threads of matter clung to his eyelashes, forming something of a curtain through which he glimpsed the silhouettes of his wife and two children beside him. The fire had been reduced to a smoldering heap of ashes, save for a single coal that glowed orange, pulsing as with the breath of life. Emory shifted slightly. His hip chafed uncomfortably against the deer skin beneath him. He exhaled slowly. His thick, sour breath hung in the icy air. Emery turned his face upwards. From where he lay, he couldn't see the stars in the night sky, but he knew they were there, thousands of them punctuating the infinite blackness. So, um, yeah, I really enjoyed, first of all, writing these <laughs> fictionalized, italicized portions of this chapter. Um, so on the one hand, it was just really fun to do this and to imagine um, what this person, whose small brief account is captured in one of the Jesuit relations, would have perhaps experienced, so some of this is um, some of this is well, one of the things that one of the theories that frames the book is that of narrative medicine, and what narrative medicine is essentially about is this idea that the stories patients themselves tell about their illness um, really matter. So narrative medicine acknowledges that there is this medicalized way of telling the stories of sickness and disability, but that sometimes these medicalized narratives clash with the stories of sickness that are told by patients themselves. And that, I mean, the the whole book is sort of an exercise in... um, (laughs) sort of a practice of narrative medicine from a historicists' point of view. But what I was wanting to do with the stories of Emery, the story of Emery James and the uh, fictionalized account was almost make a narrative medicine intervention into the Jesuit relations. So the Jesuit relations are these annual reports produced in the context of the Jesuit mission to New France um, between the 1630s and the 1670s. And they were sent back annually to a readership in France that was always just so excited and hungry for details on the mission. And it was a these annual reports were ways of raising money for the missions in New France from patrons in France. Um, So with that, you know, it makes sense that the stories the Jesuits told about what was going on in the mission were pretty narrowly construed. I mean, these were Jesuit stories about um, what they observed on the mission field, but also carefully crafted to appeal to a French reading public and to raise money for the mission. So we're only seeing—I mean, this isn't; these aren't the facts on the ground, so to speak. They're Jesuit interpretations of the facts on the ground. Um, and so, one of the things I wanted to—I mean, it's kind of a multi-layered intervention here, I suppose. One of the things I really wanted to do in this book as a whole was, of course, bring my present into conversation with the past. But also to make the point that bringing the present and the personal into conversation with, you know, the past, the other was also what, say, the Jesuits were doing or the nuns that are the subject of my second chapter were doing um, or the those who made the miracle stories in the fourth chapter about the dead Franciscan were doing were always Intellectively, bringing our present and our personal stories into conversation with what we observe, whether it's in the distant past or, um, or simply you know across cultural lines. So I wanted to make that point subtly in chapter one that the Jesuits were also seeing the histories of these indigenous people through their own lenses, just as I am reading the history of the Jesuit through my own lens. Um, Yes, and. There are ways to read. I mean, I think the other thing about this is that we unfortunately have no primary source accounts other than um, the things like the Jesuit relations, these, um, these documents produced in the context of the mission for for um, understanding the history of Indigenous people in colonial New France, and so what we have to do is—I mean, there, there are several different historical strategies for trying to recover Indigenous histories, but one of them is reading between the lines of texts like these. And the Jesuits famously depict converts like Emery James as being absolutely certain and totally rejecting their Indigenous pasts and becoming becoming kind of feral Catholics. Um, but that's, of course, <laughs> it's, of course, not the way it probably really was. There was probably ambiguity and back and forth and uncertainty. And particularly at the time of um, at the time of we might call it like when when in extremis, when in extremists, like one might very easily turn to one's traditional past to whether um, find uh, find remedies for healing or to make meaning of what one was experiencing. The final thing I'll say about Emery James, which I really enjoyed while writing it, um, is I liked thinking about as he lay there, we know he was sick. So we know that this is true. Um, uh, We know a little bit about where he's from. We know a little bit about um, his conversion and his interactions with the Jesuits, but we also know that he had a body and we have bodies too. And we can, I liked thinking about the ways that there was something universal about, uh, without denying, you know, the cultural and the temporal and the geographic differences that separated me in my world from Emery James in his world. What brings us together is that we're, we're both human beings and we both have skin that feels, we know what it is like to have an aching stomach and sour breath and um, eyes that are crusted shut so, just kind of thinking about ways that I could imaginatively—I um, mean, it sounds a little bit cheesy—but imaginatively connect with Emory James through the shared experience of having a human body
1: was was really fun, and I think it was meaningful
0: to yeah, me. Yeah, anyway. I,
1: I think that really can't, comes across in the book. And I have a a question about another chapter, but I just can't resist this follow up question it was so clear in your writing that was most vivid i think in the in the section on emory where you kind of used some creative license but throughout the book you know you really seem to kind of relish in the details of writing about human embodiment. You know, the language is so vivid. And you seem to really dig into these sources where, you know, pe- the, the people are, you know, describing the sickness and feeling the fever. And yeah, the eyes, the eyelashes crusted shut. And, and it reminded me in some ways of um, you know, I could I could hear echoes of the influence of Carolyn Walker Bynum's work or Robert Orsi's work. And and I wondered um you know, maybe this is a silly question, but but I can't resist asking it, that I wondered, you know, as you were writing about and, and immersed in these sources of like extreme Catholic reflections on embodiment, if you almost could have seen yourself or imagined yourself working in a world that was more connected to embodiment. I just couldn't help but think of you, you know, so in these embodied sources, but the life of a writer and a teacher is so is in a way so disembodied you know we're at the computer we're reading books you're looking you know that that I, just, that I wonder if um, if you kind of I, I, I don't know imagined yourself as, a healer or out there in the field or talking to sick people. You just seemed almost, there was like a pleasure in your writing about embodiment and the life of a writer and teacher and scholar is so, is so much the life of the mind. I, I was just wondering if you had That's any. That's such a great question, Brenna. I love that. Um,
0: okay. So as you know, well, this, this podcast is about where paralytics walk in the blind sea, but my first book, The Cruelest of All Mothers was, um, was also one in which I drew on my own experience as a mother in part. And so and so. I think I want to say that what I've, um, it's funny how, I mean, you know, as the years go by, you start to realize that there's like a pattern to the kind of work you do that maybe wasn't apparent when you first began. But I think um, one of the consistent themes of my work has always been to to bring my own embodied experience into it. And I think that I've always perhaps perhaps out of necessity, but I've always kind of like pushed back against this idea that the life of the scholar is a disembodied life. And that words themselves, and I think this is actually where I'm going in some smaller projects now, but that words themselves are um, just vehicles for the expression of experience. I mean, I'm really, um, these days I've been exploring the idea of, or the thin line between, Words and bodies, language and bodies. Like, in what way? In what way? Um, and this is sort of an old point. You know, Austin's uh, how to do things with words, uh, um, but just really kind of thinking about how words can do things even beyond the way that Austin imagined them with the with the illocutionary and the perlocutionary kinds of categories of language. But I think, yeah. I mean, I I think that my own work as a scholar. Um, really does bring in the body. And I do think language, I think this is why I just enjoy writing so much because um, I think language has the capacity to make us feel things in our body. It's this really cool little alchemic medium that I, I love the word translate because it's a literal carrying across. And I think, you know, just thinking about Emery um, and thinking about some of my other work, there's, there is a way in which language can actually like, pull experience across time, space and culture. And one of the things I really think about a lot and would really like to accomplish in my work. And, you know, I have no idea if I accomplished this well or not, but how can language then also be used to not just pull things from the past and make them present, but pull things, um, or push things maybe toward our readers and toward our audience, toward our students in ways that help our students feel the past and um, feel the kinds of things in their bodies that we are trying
1: to capture and
0: recover in our scholarship. So I do think, I don't know if that
1: was sensible. Absolutely. I think you you very, very effectively do that. I mean, your writing is very, very vivid. And I know you've done um, some teaching and some, I don't know if you've, published, but I know you've done some work on religion and the senses. I mean, there's something so sensory about the book, but I think that's a really neat answer is that you're kind of trying to do scholarship in a way that's not disembodied. So you don't see this radical disjunction between this, like, you know, fever, dream, pus bedside world of early modern Catholicism, but also where there was also a sense of of, of holiness and sanctification of some of this disability and illness and and the life of being a writer, you know, that both are embodied in in very different ways, but both are embodied experiences full of affections and sensory experience. So thank you. Yeah. Okay. I have a couple more questions, so we'll just keep moving along. But um, I have one more question about the the case studies that make up the, kind of the the central the central part of the book. So, one I would love to just ask you a little bit more about the founding of the the hotel in Quebec that the you know, the religious orders of nuns have found. And I thought it was just a fascinating it was just a fascinating chapter that brought together kind of the role of nursing and um, caretaking, medical caretaking on the mission field and the relationship between kind of conversion and medical and caretaking. Um, But one of the things that, you know, so there's lots of details that I think readers will love to love to learn about, but it was, it struck me of how how much work women religious have done to create hospitals in the West you know and mm-hmm. but on the and so on the one hand kind of the origins of many hospitals you know in the western Canada, the United States, are by women religious? There's so many Catholic hospitals that the kind of religious imagination at the at the open at the founding of these hospitals was this was this world where sickness and disability were imagined in a huge wide range of ways, but that it kind of created the institutions that we have now, where where the the, the range is so narrow, but there are our medical modern medical modern, modern modern medical institutions hospitals. So I wondered if you might just think a little bit, think with us a little bit about kind of the Catholic hospitals and what you've, what you learned, what struck you the most about those sisters who found the Catholic hospital in Quebec and um, maybe similarities or differences or any kind of through line between kind of hospitals today and these, the the so many founded by Catholic sisters.
0: Yeah, that's such a great question. I mean, it's a, it's a fascinating history and I know that there's more and more work being done now on Catholic hospitals and women religious, um, the vocation of women religious and founding and staffing these hospitals. I mean, one of the, so just to tie the Jesuit relations chapter together with this other chapter on the Hotel Dieu in Quebec, what struck me about the Jesuit relations at the very beginning of this project, and I have an article on this. So it was sort of an independent piece in the beginning was how much sickness came up in the Jesuit relations. So why was it that in these documents, supposedly dedicated to uh, promoting the project of Jesuit spiritual conversion of indigenous people, why was there so much emphasis on sickness? Um, I, I think I cite a statistic in the book in one of the journals, one of the volumes of the Jesuit relations, the word sick appears like, 300 times or something like that. So just an inordinate amount of attention given to physical sickness in these spiritual journals. On the flip side, one of the things that surprised me in this histoire, this history of the Hotel Dieu that I, um, that was the subject of chapter two was how very little sickness appeared. I mean, I was expecting to open this book and find um, this history of a hospital and find lots of accounts of sickness, and instead I found very, very few. And so I, this was a really hard chapter to write. It took me a long time to kind of figure out what was going on, at least what I thought was going on in this text. And I think uh, one of the most obvious points, I guess, and you know, those who have studied Catholic hospitals um, and women religious's engagement in Catholic hospitals might think this is such an obvious point and how could I not have known this? But one of the really obvious points about, the Catholic hospital in the early modern period was that what counted as health and cure had to do with not just physical health, of course, but spiritual health. So the vocation of these nursing sisters was not just to help people recover their physical health, help them get over their fever, help them, you know, repair their broken bones, but it was to do the work of spiritual conversion too. And there the physical and the spiritual are entangled in really interesting ways in these hospitals. But interestingly, there's not a one-to-one correlation. Like we would think that um, in the Catholic imagination, physical illness is often, you know, a punishment for spiritual transgressions, but it doesn't, sometimes it is works that way, but other times the relationship is not quite so simple. Uh, But the other thing, so that's one thing that these hospitals run and staffed by Catholic religious women were at least as much oriented to spiritual rehabilitation as they were to physical recovery. But the other thing that I really, really found moving, I think, and this is sort of how I close the chapter with that shout out to Arthur Kleinman. But one of the things I found really moving about this and that helped me make sense of the the histoire, which ended up telling stories of the religious women themselves much more than it did stories of patients was that these nuns were intent on healing themselves in the process of healing others. So, you know, if we think about the hospital as being about providing spiritual and physical care to the patients at the same time, the hospital was about healing the nuns spiritually, so, or strengthening the nuns spiritually. So it was this kind of double vocation that they had, or this kind of double track work that they were doing. They were just as much concerned with the patients as they were with the health of their own souls. And so there was something really redemptive about the kind of work that they were doing that redounded to their own spiritual benefit. And so at the very end of that chapter, you know, I close with Arthur Kleinman's a piece from Arthur Kleinman's I'm going to flip to this Arthur Kleinman's new work where he talks about, um, taking care of his wife and finding, and his, his wife, um, suffered from dementia toward the end of life. And he, uh, he was at her side and caring for her with a lot of intensity toward the end of her life. And, um, he, he, thinks about this. And it says, I'll read just a little bit. So the experience of caring for his wife left Kleinman altered, feeling as, I, as if I replaced at least partially who I was in the past with what Joan had become for me. I found my soul in that frustrating and elevating work of caregiving. In the end, Kleinman insists, caregiving is about us. It feeds back to engage and readjust who we are, shaping the self, sometimes for better and sometimes for the worse." But this is, I think, exactly what the nuns of the Hotel Gio have found in their own work of caregiving. It was about shaping their souls in ways that I do think we've really, I do think we've really lost. Although, um, yeah, I find my own experience at the hospital was that re- religion pops up in the modern hospital context in really unexpected ways. You know, you think it's this antiseptic, secular context, and then, you know, you walk through the hallways and you'll see tiles like, you know, John... 714 or whatever, you know, Jesus heals. And so there, there are, are these, <laughs> there are just ways in which the hospital still kind of teems with these little traces of
1: religious life in ways it's not officially supposed to. Right. Oh, wow. That's really interesting. Um, yeah. I mean, just a, qu- a quick comment. I, I was, I have been doing some research on an order of, of Catholic nuns who who began in France, but they do work in East Harlem now in New York and a lot of home nursing. And in in some of the archival material that I have found, I found exactly what you're talking about, you know, that the opportunity of nursing as a kind of spiritual opportunity of strengthening one's kind of inner life and relationship with Christ in the context of ministering to the sick. And there was one, you know, one nun I found writing about how, the really the best patient is the one who is not grateful and doesn't say thank you and doesn't return with a card because that still is so can feed their ego. Like, thank you, sister. You saved my life, sister. But that's kind of, and that it's almost like the best is when they, when they aren't thanked or they aren't appreciated, that just is like, the pure service of nursing and caretaking is the most Christ-like and the most kind of purged of, of ego. So I think that was, yeah, it's almost like the tougher the situation, um, the, the more spiritually productive it is. And that's still, that's still happening in East Harlem. I'll say. Yeah. That's so interesting. Yeah. It's like practices of mortification. And yeah. One of
0: the things these nuns say is that we don't really have to practice. I read their constitutions and rules and they said, we don't really have to practice a regime of self-mortification because work in the hospital is its own mortification.
1: Yes, absolutely. That's fascinating. Um, Well, you know, there is so much more we can say about, you know, the... um, these incredible stories that you have uncovered so beautifully in this book and how you have also helped us think about the relationship between these rich narratives of disability and sickness in the early modern Catholic world in the relationship to the, the meanings we have to available as we available to um, make sense of our own sickness and disability that this, there's so much more we could say. Um, But I want to maybe begin to move to a closing of our conversation by asking you to think with us a little bit about your experience, finishing this book um, in the midst of the COVID pandemic. And I wondered, you know, as we were in the midst of our own, you know, you know, you know, massive global experience of a medical emergency, if there was anything in the pandemic that maybe forced you to look at the sources differently, you know, and so much has even happened, probably since you were done writing it, you know, this so much has happened even in the past year and a half. Um, is there anything that you learned about sickness and disability in the last couple of years that would have enabled you to tell the story maybe differently or think about the sources differently? Or did, how did COVID you know, change or enrich your, your work and your reflection on um, sickness and disability in any way?
0: Yeah, that's a great question. I have to say my own I will say two things about this one. I found writing the conclusion when the pandemic was still raging was an interesting exercise. It was that, um, you know, it was kind of a multi, you had to keep many different, um, like time periods alive in your head at the same time. So it was that experience of being like, I'm writing this now, but I know when it comes out, the situation could change entirely. And I want to say just enough about this, this pandemic that has a future, um, to draw on the pandemic, but not to kind of make the book too tied to a particular moment in time so that it's no longer relevant when it finally comes out. So that's, that's a small point to make, but I do remember wrestling with that. It's like the, the um, you know, the struggle of the writer, how, do, how does one like write about present events in a way that doesn't limit the takeaway to the present moment. But I, you know, my, my, when i thought about the pandemic which of course i did it was mostly in the context of now people get it <laughs> because i think my <laughs> because i think my experience you know it did felt a little it felt a little isolating not in a bad way i mean sometimes in a bad way but not entirely in a bad way but my own you know diagnosis in 2017 and then my daughter in 2012 it felt a little bit like i was having these experiences that so many people around me hadn't had, and I was thinking about things that so many people around me weren't thinking about and never had to think about. And then when COVID happened, my thoughts were more along the lines of, okay, now... Now, like we're all thinking the same thing, <laughs> you also know. To
1: my world,
0: yes, yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. Like I've been, I've been wrestling with some of these concepts and issues and, and themes for a long time, and yeah, now you are too. So that's more what it felt like to me. I can't say it radically changed anything. Um, yeah, I, I can't really say that it did. I, although I do want to say that maybe just the, I do think maybe COVID exacerbated helped exacerbated the. Dimensions of the problem for me, you know, all all COVID was was, in at least in so many different portrayals in the media, was this massive problem. Whereas it also, I think we can all acknowledge, brought a little bit of beauty in in some contexts to some of our lives. You know, children's activities stopped. Um, we, and I know, for some people, it was much more difficult than this. And that's the thing about that's the thing about sickness and disability. All of our experiences are different, but to focus too much on the problem of it was to overlook like the little snapshots of beauty and the whole phenomenon, which was, you know, for some of us, things stopped, things certainly became more difficult, but some things stopped. There was a little bit more togetherness, maybe a few more family nights on the couch. And there was something, um, those little lovely aspects of some people's experiences shouldn't be overlooked.
1: Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Well, thank you. Um, and I think this will kind of bring us towards the conclusion of our conversation. Um, but Mary, I just so enjoyed talking with you about you your beautiful, beautiful book, Where the Paralytics Walk and the blind See, Stories of Sickness and Disability at the Juncture of Worlds. I would say, you know, for listeners who are interested in Thinking more creatively and imaginatively about embodied experience, um, you will be so rewarded sp- spending time with this book. And I would say I, it's hard to think of a scholar who has these two gifts more beautifully honed than Mary. On the one hand, such a such a detailed historian working in these incredibly difficult French Catholic sources, um, and your um, and then at the same time you really have kind of your heart and creativity so, um, present with you. It's kind of the heartbeat of the book of thinking about meaning making. Um, it's just such a, a sensitive, I would say it's such a sensitive analysis of this topic and I've so admired that about your work. Um, and I'm just so happy that this book is out in the world and I absolutely guarantee, um, we're going to hear much more about this as we head into 2023 because this is just a a beautiful book. Um, And people can buy it wherever they buy books published this this year from Princeton University Press. So with that, we will close. And thank you so much for taking time to talk with us today, Mary. Brenna, thank you so much. It was so much fun to talk with you about
0: this book. And so generous of you to read it and come up with such thoughtful questions. I appreciate the conversation. Thank you. Okay, thank you.